Coming up on this Sweeps Period episode of An Older Gay Guy Show. And I would meet people in bars and, you know, invite them back as we do sometimes for a little bit of company. And uh, I always had to tell them ahead of time. (laughs) Uh, Just so you know, I live in a funeral home. Well, hello everyone. Thanks for spending a little bit of your day or your night with me. Welcome to all the new subscribers and listeners. Thank you for giving my show a try. And to my regulars, big, big hugs. Now, today's show is quite the topic. Now, I just know, and, and, and I guess it's because I have like some sort of psychic link to you, But I know for an absolute fact that this morning when you got out of bed, your first thought, your very first thought was, gee, I wish I knew more about dead people. Right? Am I right? Well, worry no more. Today's show is going to be it. Now, this is something that I had planned to do for a couple years now, but I kept pushing it back. But this week, I'm inspired to talk about it. It's just that I have to be in the right frame of mind to be able to go into all the details and memories of this. Now, as you probably know from previous shows, I was in the funeral business from 1979 to 1986. And when I left, I swore I would never go back in that field again. In fact, I was so depressed and so unhappy toward the end that I made sure to let my funeral director license and my embalmer's license expire. So even if I wanted to return to the business, I'd have to redo my two-year apprenticeship and take all my license exams again, which of course, after just a few years, I would never really be able to remember all the technical stuff and all the various stuff I learned in college for the exams. So I made sure that that decision was a final one. And to be honest with you, I have never regretted that after 33 years of being out of the business. So this is going to be a step-by-step guide to funerals. Towards the end of the show, I will discuss embalming in detail, but I'm going to warn you ahead of time in case you want to skip that part because it's going to be pretty graphic. It's going to be very detailed about exactly what we did with bodies to prepare them for viewing. So I'm going to warn you, and if you want to bail out at that time, that would probably be the time to do it. We have visited funeral homes three times before on this podcast. We did number 27, which was called The Funeral Surprise, which I think was a really good show. Number 45, which was one of my favorites, The Personification of Chin Chin. And under Season 4, Episode 6, My Worst Date Ever talked about funeral stuff. I hope you will stick around because the info can be quite useful to you, especially, one, if you have someone elderly in your family, two, or it might help you begin to think about what you eventually would like for yourself, as in pre-planning your own funeral, and three, it's also really, really quite interesting. And if you always wondered about this stuff, I'm going to be able to give you the answers. 
There is so much information I'm going to be giving that this is going to be one of those two-part series. I want to go into as much detail as possible so that you have a knowledge of what to expect if you have to take care of funeral arrangements. And of course, you know, I want to make it interesting for those of you that just are really curious about what this is like. So this is going to be part one and next week is going to be part two of my interview with Officer Ron, the prison guard. And we're going to be kind of talking a little bit more about sex stuff. So make sure you don't miss part two of Officer Ron next week. And then you'll be getting part two of this coming up in 10 days or so. In today's show, I'm going to talk a lot about the stuff that we start doing when we get the call from a family that somebody has passed on. And in part two, I'm going to go into details about the preparation of the body, the embalming process, the makeup, the dressing, all of that stuff. That's going to be in part two. So today's episode is not going to be talking about anything that is too um, queasy, shall we say. But... Before we get into that, let's do a vintage TV trivia question. And due to the fact that we're going to be talking about funerals and bodies and embalming, I'm going to ask you about the show Six Feet Under, which was a multi-award winning HBO series that ran for five seasons with a total of 63 episodes from June 2001 to August 2005. It was written by Alan Ball, who would later have continued success with the HBO series True Blood. Now, oddly enough, considering that I was in the funeral business for those years, when Six Feet Under first came out in 2001, I just didn't want to watch it. I, I didn't want to get myself back into that and watch all the details of it and kind of relive that kind of life. And I also knew that when I did watch it, I was going to find all these technical errors. And I'm one of these people anyway, that when I watch a film or I watch a TV show, if something is wrong with continuity or whatever, I really piss my husband Paco off by always saying, oh my God, go back, go back, go back. Did you see that? Did you see that? See how the glass was half empty there? But look in this next shot, suddenly it's full. Now look at this one, it's empty. I'm one of those people. So I knew that it would be all of this technical shit that would drive me out of my mind. So I avoided the show, even though I heard wonderful things about it and I knew it won all these awards. And it was just literally last week when I was thumbing through trying to find something to watch. I had finished some series. I was finishing up Veep. I'm in, towards the end of that. I was watching several foreign series on Netflix, but I wanted just kind of a fun, somewhat dramatic, but funny kind of thing. And so I thought, hey, maybe I should try Six Feet Under. So I watched the first episode and holy crap, that show is good. Oh my God, that show is so good. Yeah, I can tell you that there are some technical problems with it, but it's not so much that I can't enjoy it and kind of go with the, the uh, fantasy of it and, and laugh because the show does have a lot of fantasy stuff in it. So it's pretty cool. I've only watched three episodes so far, but I have all five seasons to 
crack my way through in the next couple months. So this question is going to concern season one of Six Feet Under because that's actually where I'm at in the series. So here is the question about HBO's Six Feet Under. High school student Claire Fisher, played by Lauren Ambrose, drives a hand-me-down hearse. What color is it? What color is that hearse? And of course, the answer will be at the end of today's show. So of course, of course, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. My name is Joey Hernandez, and this is part one of, to steal a famous saying, I see dead people, and you will too someday. Season four, episode 19 of An Older Gay Guy Show. So, of course, my husband and my family and most of my friends knew that I used to be a funeral director and embalmer. And kind of what that has translated into is that whenever anything gross happens, whether it be a squashed bug or worm or a mouse that uh, has been caught or in the case a few years ago of my housemate falling down the cellar stairs and hitting his head on the cement and there was blood everywhere, I was the one that cleaned it up because everybody's like, oh, it's so gross, I don't want to go near it. Ugh. And I'm just like, oh, get out of the way. And I just clean it up because I, I've been used to doing that kind of thing. That hasn't gone away after all these years. I've been to a few funerals since I left the business, one of them being my oldest brother who died in the 80s. Another one was a, a close friend that worked at one of the gyms that my friend Anna and I both worked at. And Anna and I went to this guy's wake, the first night of the wake. And when we went up and we were kneeling in front of the casket, a little bit of Tom's hair was out of place. So I just reached in and I'm fixing his hair and then I put my hand on top of his hands and just, you know, say a little prayer. And then when we were getting up, I leaned down and kissed his forehead. And my friend Anna's like, oh my God, he's dead. How can you do that? And I'm like, Anna, duh. I've like done that. I haven't kissed hundreds of bodies, but I've touched hundreds of bodies. It's really no big deal for me. So it's kind of funny that I've retained that even after being out of the business now for 30-something years. When I was working at funeral homes, one of the ones that I worked at for about three years was down on Cape Cod, and I lived above that funeral home. In fact, that funeral home was the one, when I tell the story, the personification of Chin Chin, that was that funeral home that I was living in. And it was a really bizarre experience to live above a funeral home. It was just a small town, and it was just this one family that owned the funeral home. And so I was the everything that there is that had to be done in the funeral home. I was the one that took care of the bodies. I was the one that arranged funerals. I was the one that worked during the wakes when people would come, the big funeral service itself. I would work with the grave diggers, and I did landscaping when then nobody was dead. <laughs> 
So I did a lot of stuff down there. It's a really odd experience to live in a funeral home. My bedroom was directly over where the embalming room is. So sometimes if a body was brought in at night from someone else, for whatever reason, if I was off or whatever reason, sometimes it happened, I could hear them put the body on the table and hear the machines and all of that while I am laying in bed trying to sleep. Everybody knew down there that I was gay and I was single and I would meet people in bars and, you know, invite them back as we do sometimes for a little bit of company. And uh, I always had to tell them ahead of time, <laughs> uh, just so you know, I live in a funeral home. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so some people just passed on that. Uh, thanks anyway, guy. I, uh, I like you, you're cute, but no fucking way am I going to a funeral home. And others were like fascinated. Oh my God, tell me all about it. Oh, can I see a casket? Oh, can I get in a casket? So it was interesting. It was funny. It was just weird. It was never frightening. I know some people may think that it was a frightening thing. It was kind of very rural, kind of in the middle of a very small town. So there wasn't a lot around it. There was a cemetery behind it. And so it was pretty isolated. And even on like summer nights when there was thunder and lightning and everything, and I'm in the funeral home by myself, even if there was a body downstairs, it just was never anything that ever bothered me. I guess I understand why people feel that way, but the only way I can say it is, I guess because my parents had died and I saw them in the caskets and stuff, and my brother died and I saw him in this casket, and I grew up with my grandparents dying and my parents taking me to wakes when I was really young, you know, just like seven years old. And I just got used to it. And so by the time I was going to funeral school, of course, I was working at a funeral home at that time. And it just wasn't anything that bothered me. But it was really strange to tell people that I lived there. I was in that funeral business, as I said, from 79 to 86. I had finished at a college called New England Institute of Anatomy, which then became New England Institute of Applied Arts and Sciences. And that was a funeral director college where you go and you take all these courses on uh, chemistry and uh, psychology and all things related to the funeral business. And we also took classes in what was called restorative art, which is when somebody has had a bad accident and maybe part of their face or head is damaged so it can't be seen. So you can't just show the body that way. There are ways to work with certain kinds of things that are kind of like wax or like a putty almost that you can kind of fix the face if there isn't too, too much damage. And so there was a class on that and class on embalming. And it was uh, a two-year course. It was really good. It was very intense. I ended up being president of my class and president of the student council. So I was really involved in the day-to-day -day operations of that school while I was there. Now, as I explain this, my references are going to be how we did things back in the 1980s. However, 
except probably for increased requests for cremation, because that's kind of what a lot of people do now. A lot of people do cremation and probably far better equipment for embalming. I'm sure all the basics of what is done is pretty much the same. So as I explain this to you, keep in mind that it was back in the 80s, but it should be pretty close to what happens today. Now, a lot of people think that when you work in the funeral business that you make a ton of money. The deal is if you own a funeral home, you probably make good money. But for the people that were working at the funeral home, and especially now that it I'm referencing back in the 1980s, my pay was horrible. I didn't know it at the time, but the owner of the funeral home was so fucking cheap. The deal was that I was on call 24 hours a day, all the time, except every other weekend. I'd get every other weekend off. However, a lot of times, if something happened, then I still had to do something if he was overwhelmed with stuff to do. So 24 hours a day, which means if you're sleeping and somebody dies in the middle of the night, you got to get up, you got to do something right away. And it was very difficult. Now, back in that period in my life, I was partying a lot. I was drinking excessively, and I drank every single night. The funeral business has some of the highest rates of people that are alcoholics and also has a high rate of suicide because you're just in this sad environment. So I was working all this time. I lived in the funeral home free. I didn't have to pay for that. But my take-home pay, my take-home pay that I had to live on was $88 per week. So I had to make sure that covered my food, that covered my going out and doing my laundry, that covered my car payment and insurance. I had to then have some money to go out to a bar and be able to buy drinks and all. And I managed, somehow I managed to get by on that $88 a week. And I got, I think, one raise in the three years I was there. And I was maybe bringing home about $100 at that point. So it was ridiculous. When I left the business and I went into mortgage underwriting at a bank, I was making three times that immediately. But I couldn't live in the funeral home. So I then had rent and everything. So it's kind of, you know, a balance there somewhere, but it really was low money. I never had money in my pocket. You know, I would go and go to the grocery store. Okay, I have $11 that I have to spend and make that last for three or four days. It was difficult. And I was drinking, as I said. I was drinking all the time. And it affected my work in some respects. There were times when I could not go get a body because I had been drinking and I was, you know, kind of passed out in bed. It was, uh, it was pretty bad. Now, you know, I've tapered down. I, I asked Paco the other day about how many drinks do you think I have per month? And he said, eh, probably two or three per month <laughs> compared to two or three to start the evening every single night while I was down there. 
because, you know, you get lonely, you know, you get lonely. And I couldn't always go out and socialize because I had to be there working funerals and getting bodies ready and doing all the many things that I'm going to describe to you. It was just 24 hours a day, nonstop. So yeah, I drank to try to get through that. And the owner tolerated my drinking. He knew that I was drinking the amount I was. But the reason he tolerated it was that I was really, really good at that job. It was probably the job that I was best at that I've had in my life, even more so than personal training in some respects. I had enough empathy and at times sympathy for the people of what was happening, and I was able to relate to them and make them feel comfortable. And I'm going to describe all of that to you now in detail. This is not the embalming stuff yet. That's still to come, but I'm going to take you step by step to what happens when that phone first rings and someone has died. Okay, the first thing that happens when someone has died and they choose your funeral home is you will get a phone call most times. If it's during regular daytime hours, once in a while, a family will just show up to talk to you, which is horrible because you're doing other things. You, you might be arranging another funeral or working with a body or doing something, and they just show up and you have to drop everything and meet with them. But almost always, it's a phone call. The funeral home that I worked at down on the Cape had a part-time secretary. So during normal business hours, nine to five kind of thing, she would often be there and she would answer the calls. She would uh, make the appointments for me to meet with the families or the owner of the funeral home to meet with the families. But if it was after five or any time during the night or any time on the weekends, I was the one responsible for taking that phone call. Now, I've admitted to you that I drank a lot. So when I say that it at times affected my job, sometimes, not very often, fortunately, because I was drinking every night, but there were certain periods, months at a time, when I wasn't drinking excessively. So taking the phone call normally wasn't a problem during the night or on the weekends. I can be fairly coherent <laughs> to do that. Now, the owner of the funeral home had a rule that he did not want the phone to ring more than three times. If it went to a fourth, he got kind of pissed because he didn't want the family to have to be waiting to get service from the funeral home. So <laughs> one of the stories I, I, I have to tell, and it's, it's embarrassing and it's true, was that while I was living in the funeral home, the way this funeral home was arranged in the apartment upstairs was it was a huge living room. It had a fairly good-sized, really nice kitchen. It had a full bath. And then there was a small doorway that you would step up and pass through three rooms. I had three different rooms that I could use as bedrooms or sitting rooms or whatever. But they were over the garage. And so the ceilings would slant on either side. So you could stand straight up if you walked down the center 
through the doorways. But if you went over to either side of the room too far, you kind of have to duck down because of the, the roof coming down. So there was this little doorway. The one phone that I had in my apartment that was of both my private line and the funeral line and a line to the owner's house was on the wall outside the bathroom. So it was easy access from the living room, from the kitchen, and from the bathroom. I could grab that phone really quickly. Oftentimes, my bedroom was in the nicest of those three smaller rooms in a row at the far end. And that was the bedroom that I mentioned was right over the embalming room. So sleeping there, if a phone call came, I would have to wake up as quickly as possible. I would have to pass through those three rooms. I would have to duck down a little bit to get through the smaller doorway and then take a couple steps and grab the phone. And I was really pretty good at it. I, I couldn't do it today. I don't know how I was able to do it back then because if I was trying to do it today, I would be so nervous that I wouldn't get the call that I probably wouldn't be able to sleep. But back then, I could. Maybe the alcohol helped. I don't know. But I could fall asleep. And almost always, I could hear that phone really quickly and jump out of bed and get to the phone and answer it before the fourth ring. This one time, it was on the weekend, and I always sleep bare-assed. Every night, winter or summer, doesn't matter. I've mentioned that many times. I've slept bare-assed most of my life, and I was back then. So there was this one night when I was in charge of the phones, and I was sleeping away, and at like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and it's ringing because someone has died. So I jump out of bed, completely bare-assed, tear-assing, take off across those three rooms as fast as I could, but because it was dark and because I had just woken up from a really deep sleep, I totally forgot about the small doorway. And I went full force, smacked my head right into the wood right above the small doorway. And the next thing I knew, a fair amount of time had passed. <laughs> I wake up to having the owner standing over me. <laughs> I completely bare-assed, and my head bruised. I had to go to the hospital to have a scan to make sure I was okay. But I had knocked myself out cold, smacking my forehead directly into that wood. <laughs> and I felt like such an ass laying there completely naked and having done this. And he, the, the owner ended up picking up the phone. The owner ended up taking care of getting the body. And now he was checking on me to see why I didn't answer the phone. So, yeah. Fortunately, most people die in the hospital. So we don't get calls in the middle of the night necessarily for that. The family will wait until the morning and then give us a call and they'll tell us wh what hospital the person is at and then we'll make arrangements for that. The calls that come in in the middle of the night are usually because someone has died at home. Now, as odd as it sounds, and <laughs> I, I, maybe it isn't, I don't know, but you've heard about people that hang on until 
a certain relative that's been far away manages to get to them and say their goodbyes, or sometimes people will wait until after the holiday season so they can have one more season with the family. But there are people <laughs> that f I, I don't know if they plan it or not, but we get a lot of deaths on Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, and Christmas. A lot. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I used to think, well, <laughs> if, they, if they don't like their relatives, maybe this is one final, fuck you, you're never going to remember Christmas as a good time ever again. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you're always going to remember I died on Christmas. We used to think that. I don't know if that's true. So the next thing is going and getting the body. It's called a removal. And if it's at a hospital, it's usually pretty easy. They have particular doors on the backsides of hospitals that you will back a hearse up to. And you take out a stretcher that will open as you pull it out. You bring it in and usually an attendant that lets you in that works in the morgue will help you take the body and put the body into a body bag that is actually part of the stretcher. And you close up the bag and you can take them out and just boom, right back into the, into the hearse. That's the easy way. The problems with the calls in the middle of the night are that people usually died at home. And therefore, we have to respond immediately because we can't obviously have the poor family have their dead relative laying around in the house until the next morning. So no matter what the time, a couple of us will go and we will retrieve the body from a house. Now that can be easy or that can be a nightmare. There was one time when I was removing a body. This is when I was working at a different funeral home. The guy and I arrived and the man was on the third floor of a, of a very nice house. So it had carpeted stairs and all this. But the stairs went up and then turned and went up more and then turned and went up more. The gentleman was in the third floor in a bedroom. And we look at the gentleman and he's got to be pushing 300 pounds which isn't so bad if the gentleman died on the first floor. We could, the two of us could manage to get the body up onto the stretcher. Stretcher does drop down as well. But the fact that he was on the third floor and there were all these stairs, it was a nightmare. So we always ask the family, who's usually gathered like in the living room, sitting there, you know, waiting for us to come and take their loved one. So we always ask them, please, could you go into another room? So when we take the body out, you know, it'll be a little bit more respectful for him. And especially on this nightmare staircase deal. So the family went into the separate room and the guy and I are standing in the bedroom and we're like, how the hell are we going to get this man down these stairs? Just the two of us. And it wasn't like we could call someone else to come and help us, it'd be harder, to be honest with you, to have that many people on the stairs. We certainly wouldn't ask a relative to help us. That would be rude. So we got him onto the stretcher. We zipped him up and we come to the staircase and it's like, oh my God. All right, we got to do this. We got to take him vertically down. It's going to be the only way we can do it. So one of us has to be on the top, holding the top part. One of us has to be on the bottom. We have to make 
these corners. So we especially were happy that the family was out of the way and they couldn't see what was going on because, God forbid, when they're in a vertical position, things could happen. You know, the, the gentleman could fall out. Uh, we could drop the stretcher. So we managed to get it down somehow by the grace of the universe. We managed to do it, killing ourselves, probably getting a hernia, and we loaded it in and left. Usually the home removals are on a first floor, almost always, especially on Cape Cod, where it's usually only two floor houses and a lot of times the master bedroom is on the first floor. Those are hard removals because we do have to engage with the family a little bit, try to talk to them and soothe them and let them know everything's going to be all right with their loved one, that uh, we're going to take good care of him and we will set up an appointment time for them to come to the funeral home the next morning. And that's when we're going to talk about the funeral. So we will take the body out of the house and we'll go back to the funeral home. Now, it doesn't matter if we remove a body from a hospital, which has been in a refrigerated tray, or we're taking someone from their home who, I'll say delicately, sometimes are still warm-ish because they only died a couple of hours ago. And we will do the embalming right away. Again, I don't want to talk about that until part two, and I'll go into details about that then. But that's the removal. We, we take the body back to the funeral home, and we do our work immediately. Not every funeral home does that. They, some funeral homes, big funeral homes, have refrigeration units too, and they will put the body in there and just keep the body there until the next day when they get around to doing it, you know, during regular business hours. But all the funeral homes I work at never had that refrigeration so it was important both for respect of the body, ease of the work that we had to do. So that's the removal of the body. The next day is when we will meet with the family. Now, I personally, I, I seem to excel in that. I seem to be able to connect with families. Perhaps that is because I had to go through so much with my own family, losing my parents, losing my brother, especially widows, which is the most common that's going to occur. Men tend to die younger than women do. A lot of the widows, especially back in that era, which I know wasn't that long ago, but in a lot of respects, it kind of was. Because a lot of the times, the husbands took care of everything, all the finances and payments to all the bills. And the wife just raised the children and kept the house and sometimes worked. Women were working at that time, certainly. But when a widow is completely lost and just doesn't know what to do, that is where I step in and I seem to be able to give comfort to them. Over those, the course of those seven years, I had hundreds, a couple hundred women and some men crying in my arms. I never saw anything wrong with being completely available to them in an emotional way too. A lot of funeral homes will say, no, 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 we have to stay strictly business and, you know, we're not counselors and da, da, da. I didn't take that attitude. I took the attitude of, I got to try to make this as easy as possible for these women that are just not knowing what to do. So 
you know, I've held them while they cried. I've told them things would be all right. If necessary, I would even help them try to figure out what to do after the funeral. You know, I, it was a small town. I got to know the families in those, in that town pretty well. And so I did follow up, you know, I would stop by a widow's house six months later you know, dressed as me in my own car and just check on her to see how she's doing. And it, it, it occurred also certainly with men, but the women were the ones that were primarily really lost. And when I did these follow-ups, when I would stop by a widow's home, again, dressed in my own clothing, no suit, driving my own car, which was a bright orange Firebird at the time. I didn't drive the funeral home cars. I stopped not as a representative of the funeral home, but as myself, just seeing how another human being is doing. And if there's anything else I personally, not business-wise, personally could do for them to help them out. That wasn't part of my duties. I wasn't paid any extra to do it. The owner of the funeral home didn't usually even know that I did it unless that widow then came to a wake later on for a friend of theirs and might mention to the owner when they see me, oh, you know, Joey stopped by to say hi, that was so nice. And then, of course, you know, the owner of the funeral home was happy that I did that, but it is not usual for the funeral business to do that. And I am by no means trying to say, hey, look how great I was, look what I did. It's just one human being that has been through the grieving process myself, stopping by to check on another human being. That's all it was. It wasn't any great, um, amazing thing that I did. So during the meeting with the family, and this is something that I think is really important for a takeaway for you, okay? I, I did an episode of this show where I talked about if you were going into a gym for the first time and you were going to tour it and maybe get a membership, I kind of told you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. I want to address that as well. In a funeral home, primarily the money is made in order to keep the funeral home up and have some profits and pay the people. There's a huge markup on caskets, usually three or four times what the funeral home actually pays for it. And they have all kinds of various services. It was a high Catholic area where I was. And so I would coordinate with the priests at the Catholic church that I was affiliated with. And usually in those kinds of funerals, the family will want a wake, which is the public visitation and viewing of the body and visit with the family at the funeral home on one night, which is usually for the family usually like the day after someone dies. And then the following day have two periods, two to four and seven to nine is the most common where you have public visitation to the wake. Most people down there had wakes. That was very common on Cape Cod because of the Portuguese and Cape Verdean cultures. They often had so many members of the family and friends and they just wanted it to be a big event. Now, when I worked for a Jewish funeral home here in Boston, it was completely opposite. There was maybe, once in a while, a small viewing for the family, but never any kind of public wake and visitation. There was certainly public funerals, and people would attend those. 
But on the Cape, we usually had that one night for the family to visit and then two visitation periods the next day. So therefore, that meant that we had to prepare the body differently than we would if they were just being cremated and they weren't going to see the relative at all. But working with the families really meant a lot to me. And because this was such a small funeral home, my duties extended where I would have to go out to the cemetery and talk to the cemetery people about where the grave is going to be and mark the grave myself based on maps. And then I would hire the people to come in, usually with a backhoe, to dig up the grave and to lay the boards and to lay the fake grass around. So often I was going to these little cemeteries around that town, there was three or four of them, where I would go and I would get to know where everybody was buried. And in that episode, The Personification of Chin Chin, one of those cemeteries is the one that I talk about in that particular episode. The hardest thing about meeting with families is when it's a child. I've done a few infant funerals. They're very, very difficult. And there was one that I did that was, we had a really great football team down in this small town on the Cape. And one of the star football players was riding his bike down the street one night. It was a dark road and he was hit and killed. And it was a massive funeral massive funeral. Cars couldn't find places to park to get to the funeral home. It was just overcrowded. It was just so sad. I mean, all of us at the funeral home were just so sad about this. So the wakes are usually done that way. The first night is for the family and then two times the next day for visitation. And then the funeral itself, whether that be at a church or in the funeral home or at the grave, Those are usually done the third day. So the things to watch out for when you are doing funeral arrangements, if you are ever in those circumstances, is be aware that the caskets are marked up greatly. And oftentimes, funeral homes just have a policy where they will show you the nicest ones first. And only if you ask for a cheaper casket or a, sometimes people say a wooden box, you have to request it. And they usually have them in an, in an adjacent room or behind some curtains because they're trying to get you to buy the, you know, the $8,000 casket. So the markup is there. If you are arranging a funeral, don't be afraid. Don't be shy about asking to see less expensive caskets because I can guarantee you absolutely that the funeral home does have them. When I worked at the Jewish funeral home here in Boston, there were actually three rooms of caskets. The first one was referred to by us amongst ourselves as the Cadillac room. These were the most expensive caskets. And this was, again, back in the early 80s. And there was one that was $20,000 back in the early 80s. So the first room was these incredible caskets. The second room that you enter are the ones that are middle priced, but still pretty far up there. And we had an instruction. We were told by the owners on the third room, which is where the less expensive caskets were and the wooden boxes, there was a door, a regular wooden door that could close. We were told to leave it 
about one third of the way open. So it doesn't look like we closed the door and we didn't want them to see those. But at the same time, it kind of discouraged people from going beyond those first two rooms. I didn't agree with the policy. I thought it really sucked. I thought it was really taking advantage of people. But the owners were the owners and those of us working for them had to abide by these rules. So do ask to see the less expensive ones. Even if you want to say, I would like to see every single casket that you have here. Now, in most funeral homes, under most circumstances, you're probably talking about maybe 20 caskets, not beyond that. So do ask. Make sure you ask. They anticipate that you will ask, but they're really happy if you don't. Other incidental expenses are going to be, you know, there's things that the family can't control nor the funeral home can control. There's a certain amount of money to open and close the grave. There's a certain amount of money that you pay to a church for the funeral. If people are trying to save money, I personally, and the owner of the funeral home was not very happy about this. <laughs> I used to try, if the widows seemed lost, I would automatically send them towards the cheaper caskets without them even seeing the big ones. Sometimes they'd ask, oh, no, I want something better. And I'd show them something better and I'd say, I'm sorry, this is the price. I don't set this price. There's nothing I can do about it. it you know, maybe just go for this lesser expensive casket. But there are some expenses that the funeral home has control over. And those are the things that I used to work on reducing if a widow or a family were telling me that they didn't have enough money. Now, I used to believe that I was doing the best thing by reducing what fees I could by suggesting things to them. Now, did I get taken advantage of? Yes, probably a few times. I'm sure there were families that when they were coming to make the arrangements had already decided, okay, we're going to, you know, tell them that we're poor and, you know, and try to get prices down. But I would rather be taken advantage of once in a great, great while by a family than to be close-minded about extending discounts to families that I know just don't have the money to pay. And perhaps it was because it was not my funeral home. I only was a funeral director and embalmer at it. But I felt I was doing the best thing. And there were many, many times that the owner and I got into screaming matches at each other about these things. And when I did leave, I mean, I think I was a valued employee. He tried over the next two years, four different times to try to lure me back down to the Cape and into the business, but I did not want to go. So what I was doing wasn't the worst thing in his eyes, but of course he wanted to be making money as much as is reasonably expected. But I, w I was willing to work with the families as they needed me. They sometimes have service fees, the use of the funeral home itself for the wakes, Sometimes I might suggest, why don't you just do the first night for the family and the second night for the public and skip the afternoon one? I used to always try to save money for the people. And that's, you know, that's the downside of what I used to do that my bosses never liked. 
I know it's a money-making business. And I know, I know, I used to see the books. I know the funeral homes still made money, even if they bought the lesser casket, even if they knocked off one of the visiting hours. So I was always... (laughs) Always up against my boss going, I'm sorry, but she didn't have a lot of money and this is what I did. That's life. (laughs) So it was just my personal philosophy on dealing with the families. And I have to say that the majority of the families that I worked with, I think would say that they had as good an experience as one can have in a funeral situation when they were um, dealing with me. Uh, I cared a lot about my families. I, I really, really cared about my families. So before I wrap up part one of I See Dead People, I have <laughs> like the greatest thing in the whole world <laughs> to give to you, to give to me. Ah, I need like a drum sound, drum roll or a trumpet sound or something. Give it to me. Really? That's what you gave me? Okay, are you ready for this? (laughs) After all these years, I have a sponsor. And the crowd goes wild. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Okay. And I am so proud because, you know, I've, I've had inquiries before with sponsors and I just didn't really like their products enough that I wanted to promote them. This little mention I'm going to do about the company and what is available normally is going to go in between the introduction and the main part of the podcast, but because I had all of that stuff pre-recorded, I'm just attaching it at the end right now. I am so pleased to announce that I am now affiliated with AdamMail.com, A-D-A-M. M-A-L-E, all one word, dot com. A fantastic company that I hope to have a long-term relationship with. Adam Mail has fantastic sex toys, signature toys, masturbators, lubes, dildos, anal douches, undergear, prostate toys, and so much more. And let's face it, my podcast is often pretty sexual. So that's why hooking up with AdamMail.com was great for me. Now, here is the offer I can give you. Go to AdamMail, A-D-A-M-M-A-L-E.com. You can get 50% off almost any one item with free shipping. That's right. 50-50-50% off almost any one item with free shipping by using the code AOGGS at checkout. An older gay guy show, A-O-G-G-S. And you can get that amazing discount. And don't think for a moment that I myself am not going to take advantage of my own code because I am. Please check out adammail.com and enjoy sex. The answer to today's vintage TV trivia question from the HBO series Six Feet Under. High school student Claire Fisher drives a hand-me-down hearse. What color is it? The answer is lime green, which, trust me, (laughs) would never happen with a funeral home. 
But that's okay. We have so much more to talk about I See Dead People. Part two, we're going to talk much more about things that you can do to try to reduce the expenses. And I'm going to tell you all about the embalming process, but I am going to give a heads up before I do that section. But it's going to be quite interesting. That's going to be coming up in a short amount of time. Next time, the next episode is going to be part two of three parts with my interview with Officer Ron, the gay prison guard. And we're going to talk a little bit more about things that he saw going on in the prison. So be sure to check for that. Meanwhile, this is Joey Hernandez. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. I will be back very soon with another Sweeps Period episode. Have an awesome Labor Day weekend. My best to you. Bye for now.